Thanks, Marielle. Well, good morning. I want to add my welcome to Lachlan. So great to have you here amongst us. My name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. Uh, And we get today to one of, I think, the greatest passages in Scripture. We get to see so much about Jesus, who He is, and what He's done, and what that means for us. So why don't we pray together now that God, by His Word and through His Spirit, would shape us to listen to Him. Let's pray. Father God, thanks so much for this day, for the opportunity to come together as Your people, to sit under Your Word. And we ask that by your spirit, as we gather this morning, that you'd shape us and mold us into the likeness of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, humility is a concept that we in this country embrace, don't we? It's kind of a defining value for how we act and how we assess others. It's a necessity for both personal and corporate interaction. But what does it mean to be humble? It's easy to work out what uh, being humble is not. All you've got to do is, at the next social gathering that you go along to, just tell everyone one or two of your greatest achievements. Just kind of let them know at the table, you know what I did this week? And sprout out the things that you've done that have really been good in your life and watch what happens. Right? You'll feel the judgment. Uh, you, you, you'll kind of get the quiet looks, people kind of edging away slowly from the table or wherever you are. Because really it just comes across as arrogant and we don't like it. The idea of humility is so ingrained in us that I bet, as I mentioned, just mention one, of, one or two of your achievements, you go, I don't really have that many achievements, right? How many of you thought that as I said that? And if you didn't, shame on you. How unkiwi of you to not say that in your minds. <laughs> humility is typified in our culture by our very own Richie McCaw, isn't it? When in 2015, he allegedly turned down a knighthood from the Queen because he wasn't into titles. And that's humility. Our nation applauds humility. We hate hearing anyone being boastful about their own feats. A study published in the New Zealand Journal of Psychology surveyed 5,000 New Zealanders on humility. Now, they defined humility as this, and the definition's on the screen. Reciprocal altruism, sincerity, and the absence of entitlement, where altruism was defined as acting to help someone else at cost to oneself. Sincerity, the absence of entitlement, acting to help someone at a cost to oneself. Humility has become a kind of a way of life for us, a core value, almost the most important value for us as a nation. We certainly pride ourselves in it, don't we? Which the irony is not lost in, if you get that. Why do we value humility so much? Well, Psychology Today in New Zealand gives an explanation of why we do it. They say this, Individuals who go out of their way to aid others often receive something in return, whether it's an intangible reward, such as admiration and respect, or material support at a later time. In other words, we're humble because it benefits us. It benefits us personally and as a society. Now, if we're honest, we've invented this whole culture of humility and being humble. We've invented a way to kind of interact that benefits us but looks humble. When someone praises us, we say, please stop which we all know means, I want you to stop while I'm saying it, but underneath, no, keep going, I like it. Or or we say, oh, it was nothing. And that really means, oh, do you see how able and equipped I am to do that superhuman task that I just think is normal? It was nothing, really, I'm excellent. Right? And that's what we mean when we say it was nothing. We want people to recognise that we've done great things, but we never say it. We just want them to say it about us, and then everything's good and right. Well, in this next section of Philippians we come across this extraordinary part of God's Word that really is quite amazing. We meet a man who is the model of true humility. 
And the claim of Paul is that to truly understand his humility is to experience the power of God to change us. Recognizing his humility changes us as sinful and broken and self-centered people into people who can live life to the full for God. As we've said, the Apostle Paul has been writing to a church he started in Philippi. He's in prison in Rome, unsure what life will be like for him, whether we be released to life or released to the lions. It's really life or death for him. But instead of complaining, he writes, giving these Philippians and us what we need to keep going in life and trusting in, in the Lord. In the centre of this letter is the centre of the Christian life and in the centre of why this universe exists is the humility or this model of humility that Paul lays out for us in verse 6. In order to understand the depths of this person's humility, we need to understand the heights he descends from. So point number two in your outline, the descent. Philippians 2 verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. So far in this letter to the Philippians, Paul has called himself a servant of Christ. He's looked forward to the day of Christ's return. He's talked about the righteousness that comes through Christ. He's explained that all matters for him, all that matters for him in life is that Christ is proclaimed. He's just said literally to live is Christ. Christ is the center of everything Paul is about and now we hear why. As Paul, he quotes probably what was a first century song about the identity of Jesus Christ. This Jesus, the Christ that Paul lives for, is God. He existed in in the form of God, or other translations put it as being in very nature God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited, something to, to run after. Paul's saying that this Jesus, who existed in history, who lived and died, is both God and equal with God. He is God, and He is equal with God. Uh, Jesus is the one who, John 1 tells us, was there in the beginning. Before anything ever existed, before the world was created, He was with God and He was God. Paul says in Colossians 1 that Jesus created everything. Look at this, Colossians 1.16. For everything was created by Him, in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. As we get to this part of the scriptures and we read Paul's view on Jesus, we see there couldn't be a higher view. He is the one who made everything, who sustains everything. You and I start out life as creatures, not creator. Whereas Jesus was there in the beginning. He he had no beginning. He's before all things. He sustains all things. Every branch and bird, he, he holds together. Every person, every planet, he holds in its place. All because of him. There is literally no one else like him. Everything that exists is his. He owns it all. He made it all and he sustains it all. You couldn't get any higher. There's nothing that he's in need of. He doesn't kind of scratch his head and think, oh, I've got to go to Bunnings and, and get something. You know, he, he, it's all his. He's complete in and of himself. There's nothing missing in his relationships. He's, it's perfect relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There's no higher height to climb to. Nothing that could be added to him. 
And Paul tells us this so he can make sense of the incredible humility and the descent that he makes in verse 7. Listen to this. Chapter, one, verse, or chapter 2, verse 7. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. The creator, Paul says, became part of his creation. He didn't have to. He wasn't forced to by some bad decision he made or some market kind of problem. It wasn't a mistake or a miscalculation. No one had to twist his arm to do it. The creator of all things chose, allowed himself to come into the world he made as an infant. The creator and sustainer of all was sustained by his mother's milk. He allowed himself to do that. He he allowed his, his nappy to be changed by his creation. Do you see how humiliating that is? Totally dependent. John says the word became flesh. The son of God, God the son, became human. And he comes, not kind of as a human king, which you'd think, you know, he'd step into the world as as a noble or a person of societal power. He steps into the world a slave, a servant. I mean, when, when do we see this? We highlight models of humility and we say, look at that person. They didn't do this or they, they didn't take a night ship or they, they served this person or that person. But here, Jesus comes from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows. He was due all glory and honor and praise that exists in the whole universe from every human king who ever existed, from every part of creation, from every living thing. But he lays that aside and says, I will come as a servant to serve those who should be serving him. To serve those who he sustains. The ones who owe him their very lives. The king of the universe comes to serve his creation. We live in a world where we're lucky if someone crosses the street to help us. This God crosses the universe to meet us. He becomes human flesh. But it doesn't stop there. If that wasn't low enough, look what happens next in verse 7. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the one who makes life, who sustains life, gives up his very own life in the place of others so others don't have to die. Others don't have to face the penalty that they deserve. He dies in their place. And it's not a peaceful death. It's the most humiliating and disgusting death, a criminal on a cross. Now, I think it's, it's hard for us today to, to, to realize the shock value of crucifixion. We kind of use the, the symbol of the cross today as such a domesticated symbol. We wear it around our necks in sterling silver and gold. We, we hang it from our, our, our earlobes, carefully crafted, sterile and clean. We put crosses on our buildings. It's become a symbol for the church. It's what we've come to expect of Christians. But the cross is horrific to the first century reader. It's grotesque. It's wrong. It was, it was only crucifixion was, was reserved for the worst of the worst. Uh, to kind of think about taking that symbol and wearing it today to be like walking around with earrings of, of the electric chair on your ear and, and kind of having little, little syringes hanging from our, our necklace where it's the, the lethal injection. It's kind of, there's a stigma to it. It's like, whoa, that's, that's weird. 
Scholars have gone through every reference to the cross, crucifixion in the ancient world from 200 BC to 200 AD. And without exception, without exception, it's disgusting and it's shock value every time. Oh, who would want to die that death? The Romans had a number of different ways of executing criminals. They didn't need to just do a cross. There were different ways that they were, they were doing it. But crucifixion was the most kind of disgusting one. That's the one where the shame was. You actually couldn't crucify a Roman citizen without the express permission from the emperor himself. That's, that's how kind of high it was. It was for slaves, for anarchists, disgusting foreigners. But the creator of the universe willingly takes on human flesh, willingly becomes human into a world and allows those he made and sustains to nail him to a cross, disgusting as a criminal, because he loves us. He carries the judgment of God that you and I deserve for turning our backs on God. See, none of us have treated God rightly. We haven't treated him as he ought to be. We've not put him as the number one position in our lives. We've rejected him. And for that, if you reject the author of life, you're rejecting life itself. Death is what we deserve. A criminal's death. But God the Son dies our death for us. He carries the judgment of God you and I deserve. He carries our blame and wears our shame. Now, I've got nothing against Richie McCaw. But turning down a knighthood doesn't really compare with turning down the throne of the creator of the universe and dying our death in our place. If you want a true picture of humility, this is it. It got me thinking, what are the sacrifices that we make? Where do I try and think through sacrifices that I've done in my life or I see in the lives of others around us? And you think through the things we give up for loved ones, the sacrifice of our time, of time for ourselves, or a sacrifice of a few dollars, or we might even spend a few years beside the bed of someone who's going through all sorts of pain and horror. I was just looking at the, at the honour board on the wall, even the cost of those who went to war on our behalf. They seem large when we limit ourselves to what we see here and now in front of us, but if we lift our eyes to the heavens and we turn our eyes back to human history, we see God the Son dying in our place. That's an overwhelming sacrifice beyond anything anyone else I've heard of has ever done. We live in a world that is so obsessed with being upwardly mobile, of getting that next promotion, of being in that position, of leading this company, of doing that thing. We, we want the glory for ourselves in our humble, careful way. But Jesus is downwardly mobile. He empties himself of everything that was his. Now, he doesn't empty himself of his divinity. Some come along to this passage and say, oh, so he empties himself and becomes a human. He's no longer God. No, no, no. He empties himself by taking on the form of a servant. He empties himself of his position. He's still God the Son. He doesn't lose his divinity. But he empties himself to become a nobody, a somebody, the greatest somebody, becomes a nobody. But that's not where the story ends. As we understand this, this hymn, this song that would have been in the first century that, that Paul is quoting, we see that it ends on an even higher note in the ascent. Point number three, the ascent. Verse nine. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. 
We, we love a name. You know, I don't know if you've ever found the need to, to name drop people. I don't know what it is. It's weird. There's this sense where if you know someone famous, you're like, I met them once. I saw them. You know, I, I've been in the same room as dot, dot, dot. And somehow we think by being in that room, some of their greatness of their name rubbed off on us. And we're like, oh, you, you know that person. Or, and we find ourselves wanting to associate with those in great places. Uh, I don't know what it is, but we've got this affinity for that. Jesus gave up his position, died, emptied himself, but he didn't stay dead. God raised him to life. He gave him the name that is above every other name. Previously, he was God the Son. Now, he's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised King. That's what the word Christ means. King of kings, Lord of lords. What's changed is he was always God the Son. He's now God the Son who is human. See, we don't think about this. He existed as God for all time and then stepped into our world and became human to remain human. Jesus didn't just become human for his 33 years on earth and then rise and then go back to being what he was before. No, God the Son changed to be Jesus Christ. There's flesh and blood on the right-hand side of the Father ruling in heaven right now and he will continue that way for all eternity. Just like us, flesh and blood. Sure, he was raised in a glorious human body, but he will be flesh and blood forever. Fully God, fully man. Now this God-man, Jesus Christ, has been given the position of promised king, ruler, Messiah, the name that is above every other name. And here there's been a change, a fulfilling of the plan of the Father, Spirit and Son that they had before creation. Now Jesus is in that place. That means right now, no matter who you think is in control of your office, your family, your, your country, the world, Paul is saying Jesus is king. He is in charge of all things. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, he says. Now, not everyone treats him as king. We don't treat him fully as king. The world around us scoffs at the idea that, that there could be a king overall. Paul tells us Jesus is king. That is the reality right now. The world around us, it just pushes back on any idea that there's one person that we're responsible to. If we were to say, no, Jesus is king, you kind of get that look, well, he's king for you. And that's what the world wants us to say. Look, Jesus is king for me, but I have a different way of thinking. But this means we, we can't do that. We can't say that. When the world says, how dare you impose your view on me? How dare you say there is only one way to God and one truth? We must come back to the reality of what Paul is saying carefully and humbly. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As tempting as it is for us to say like the world around us, look, your view is your view and that's good for you. Paul doesn't allow us to say this. This reality of who Jesus is does not allow us to say, look, that's good for you. It's not good for you to hold another view. If you've come here today thinking Jesus isn't God, I need to let you know, that view is destructive. It will not help you in life. It might feel comfortable for a little bit of time, but the future will show the reality that Jesus is King. And if we love those around us, we can't allow them to continue thinking that, oh, well, that's good for you. 
We cannot say it's okay to walk away from the God who made you and, and think that someone else is your king. It'd be to endorse anarchy. And it's unloving. Now we need to say humbly and carefully, I'm convinced that history points to the fact Jesus is king. He made us. He died in our place. He rose from the dead to be king over all and he will come back again to judge the living and the dead. And I would love nothing more than for you to meet this king, to see his love, to experience his forgiveness. But if you are here today and you've not yet come to trust Jesus as your king, we're so glad you are here. So glad you've heard who Paul claims Jesus to be, who Jesus is. Let me plead with you today. Stop pretending there's another king. Come and put your life in the hands of the one who came and lived and died in the greatest act of humility you have ever seen. It's my experience that the more of him you see, the more you see of who he is and what he's done, the more life makes sense and eternity becomes your focus and true joy and happiness become yours. And that's because... Paul doesn't just stop with his picture of Jesus in the present. He outlines the future. The next point, the future. Verse 10. God exalted Jesus, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the picture Paul paints of the future? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I don't know how many times I've wished I had a time machine. Basically, uh, normally I wish I had a time machine because I say something dumb and want to go back and not do it again. Or I do something dumb and I want to have a retake. But I, I kind of I watch back to the future and I'm like, yeah, you'd know... Who'd won all the races? You could just bet, just on one once, you know, and get the right one sorted. Or you could work out what decisions to kind of have made and which side of history you want to end up on by making your choices now in view of what happens then. Like a time machine would be so helpful, wouldn't it? Well, here Paul tells us the future. He tells us exactly what we need to hear about the future. Not what horse is going to win in what race or what shares to pick or who to choose to marry. He tells us that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before Jesus Christ as Lord. That is the future that should shape every decision we make. Is it not? Every knee will bow before Jesus as King. Every tongue will confess. Now, he's not saying that everyone will come to to trust in Jesus, this side of his return. No, some will confess Jesus as Lord through a smile on their face with great joy when he returns and say, yes, here you are. See, he is Lord. He is King. Others of us will confess through gritted teeth. I was wrong. He is the Lord. My knees bowed, but I still want nothing to do with him. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the picture of the future. But it's more going on here than just the future. Paul's actually quoting something that God said in the past. Look at Isaiah 45. It's on the screen for us. Isaiah 45 verse 22. And check it out later in context. 
But Isaiah quotes this, speaking on God's behalf. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said about me, righteousness and strength are only found in the Lord. And that word the Lord there is the word Yahweh, God. When God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he was speaking here of Jesus. That every knee would bow and every tongue would swear allegiance to him, to the person of Jesus. And Paul uses it here to show with absolute certainty, Jesus is God. He is God because here is the thing that has been attributed to Yahweh has been attributed to Jesus. And what you have here are the elements that go into what would later be called the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, some people, they come along and they say the doctrine of the Trinity didn't exist until the 4th century. But here we have something written no more than 20 years after Jesus has risen from the dead. That people were confessing Jesus as God. People were looking forward to the day he returns and every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that he is Yahweh. That's what they were confessing 20 years after. That is the picture of the future. That is the picture that needs to shape how we live and what we live by. On that last day, there won't be any confessing Muslims left. Nor Buddhists, nor Hindus, nor skeptics, or atheists. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Now that makes a massive difference to the present. To how we live now. In fact, this whole section has come really after what Paul said is, are some commands about how we're to live in the present. As we understand who Jesus is and what he did and his humility and what the future looks like, it changes how we live now. And so Paul says in Philippians 1.27, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Seeing the humility of Jesus, what he's done, coming from the heights, his, his descent, and then being raised up high as the, the one true God-man and ruler over all and everyone bowing their knee to him and confessing that he is Lord. Therefore, live your lives now, Philippian church. Live your lives now, E.V., as citizens of heaven, worthy of this news, the gospel of Christ. If you've recognized who Jesus is, then you don't have to wait till later to make him king. In fact, you ought not to wait till later, for he is king now. You are not, first and foremost, a citizen of New Zealand, or Australia, or Tonga. Your, your identity is not primarily tied up in your iwi, or the history of your people, or the colour of your skin. Those things, look, while you don't lose them, they matter very little now, compared to whose you are in Christ. Your identity is tied up with being in Him, recognising Him as King. The future that is painted in the book of Revelation is people from every tribe and language and, and people and nation gathered around the throne. We don't lose our historic identity. We don't lose who we are. Oh, but now we are gathered around the throne of Jesus where he is the king and we are citizens of his. Recognizing Jesus as king means that we'll be united in Christ. If you live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, it will result in unity, for you're following this king. Look at verse 27. Paul says, Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. So this is how we knew that um, uh, the the writers of the New Testament really drove Hondas, because they were all in one accord. One of my favorite biblical jokes. Lame. And it's just as lame to be in Jesus and have divisions about what sort of car we follow. And what sort of computer we hold. Or what sort of view we have around this or that, isn't it? If Christ is our king, we divide around so much stuff. But he's saying, put Jesus first. Live for him with one mind, as one church, not divided, not bickering and complaining against one another, no factions amongst you, but with gospel clarity. We are those who are at war, who who Jesus has come and died and risen again. We are intent on one purpose, contending together in the faith with linked arms for our Savior so the world might see his incredible love. What a tragedy it would be for the world around us to not hear who Jesus is from our lips because, well, we had other things to focus on. Or we weren't united or we weren't clear in this as a church or as Christians. Paul here is not suggesting that we try harder to, to achieve something. You know, make sure you try really hard and be united so that in the end you might be saved. He's saying, you know, because you have been saved, because Jesus died and rose again, live that way. Respond to that by living gratefully, wholeheartedly, in a united fashion. And that becomes a sign for those that are trying to destroy the faith, trying to come in and say, that's not true. You're going, well, we're still standing firm in Christ. No, as we look to the present, as we see what Christ has done and who he is, and as the future informs the present, we're to stay united in Christ. And Paul also calls us to therefore suffer for Christ. To suffer for Christ. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and hear that I now have We've heard of Paul's suffering, of what he's been through. We're going to hear of it a little later in the letter as well. He's in prison. To live is Christ. To die is gain, he said. And he says, this is what we've been called to in unity. This is what you are, Philippian church. This is what you are, Auckland EV. You're called to be united and to suffer for Christ. Too often, I think about the Christian life as as a nice existence, the, the best way to live. And it is the best way to live. There is a great joy and hope in trusting the one who has died and risen again. But there's a tendency for us to pull back from anything that makes it not nice or comfortable or brings about suffering. This is the whole reason Paul explained what Christ did, the heights that he was at, the depths that he descended to. Chapter 2, verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. What is that? He gave up everything for the good of others. The Christian life is one of following Christ. And that means suffering. Do not think that becoming a Christian makes life easy, means that it will be comfortable. It does not. It cannot. It is not what we are called to do. If we're following a Savior who who gave up his life and the world around hated him so much they crucified him, it's not going to be cruisy for those who follow him, who say the same thing to the same world. When Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, take up your cross and follow me, he didn't mean get a cross tattoo on your neck or or, or put some cross necklaces in. He literally meant follow me to death. 
Die to living for yourself. Live for him. Live like him. Live for the good of others that they might hear the news of Jesus. Occasionally, I hear people talking about the cross they have to bear. Or even myself, reflecting on the hardships of life. You know, I've got this cross to bear. It might be a maths exam or, um, you know, dealing with your mother-in-law. You know, they're big crosses to bear for us. The lack of a husband or wife. We've all got our crosses to bear in life. That is not what Jesus was talking about. Unless your mother-in-law is out to kill you because you're a Christian. The first century, if you were carrying your cross, you were on your way to be killed. You're as good as dead. Dead man walking would have been called out around. There's no going back, no prospect of independence, just a future of pain, humiliation and death. This is it. You've put it all in. You are with him. The call to follow Jesus with King as, as our king is the call to live in a world that hates the idea of someone other than themselves being king. And if they crucified our saviour, do you think it's going to be any easier for those who follow him? If we have this view that while we try to want to speak the truth in love and care for people lovingly as we speak, that, that, that it won't affect us badly, we're just mistaken. Now, we can make it easier by saying less, by living a little more like the world around us, by flying under the radar as the secret Christian in the workplace or in the home and the family and friends. We can look like everyone else. But hear Paul's words. It has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That means in the present, we are on mission for Christ and with Christ. Philippians 2 verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and mercy, then make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should, not, should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. As, as we look at what Jesus has done, there'll be so much encouragement. My Savior has died in my place. My future is secure. The consolation of his love. I am loved by God. God has shown his love so clearly, so much more clearly than anyone else on the face of the planet. That he would die for me. He would take the punishment in my place. Does God love me? You look to the cross and say, yes, absolutely. And we get to experience that relationship with him now, our future secure, Jesus' death in our place, forgiveness. They're all amazing benefits of being in Christ. Paul says, if you're experiencing those, that encouragement and consolation and love, then adopt the same attitude of Christ in the way you live. Live like Christ. Love like Christ. Speak like Christ. Give like Christ. Serve like Christ. Jesus could ask us to give up everything, every single thing we have, and even then it would be nothing compared to what he gave up for us, wouldn't it? Following Jesus comes with such security and joy and purpose. So often we get caught up on grasping for the things that we believe are our rights. It's exactly what Jesus didn't do. He didn't grasp trying to hold on to his position. He gave it up. 
We need to see the privilege of serving Jesus with everything. Of giving up our rights, our freedoms, our comforts, our earthly securities. To consider others greater than ourselves. How? By pointing them to the one who came and died in their place. So that more and more people might confess him as Lord willingly before it's too late. Jim Elliott is one of my heroes. He's a missionary, a man who was convinced that this news of Jesus needed to go to the ends of the earth. In 1955, he gave up everything. He flew a plane with four friends into an Indian tribe in Ecuador. And basically, there were 60 people in this tribe that really were quite antagonistic towards anyone coming in. And they were like, they need to hear this news of Jesus. Jim had this tagline in life, having grasped what Jesus had done for him, the depth of his humility at the cross propelled him to live this way. He said these words, and it's on the screen, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He, he captured the, the essence of what Paul was encouraging the Philippians and you and I to do today. But on January the 8th, on my birthday, 1956, as they landed that plane in there to, to, to give gifts to these Indians and to speak of the news of Jesus, they killed him and the four other missionary companions with him. Four young wives lost their husbands. Nine children lost their fathers. And Jim's last written words in the journal that he had with him, the journal from the day he was stabbed to death, says this, O Jesus, Master and Centre, end of all, how long before that glory is yours which has so long awaited you? Now there is no thought of you among men. Then there shall be the thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised, then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven, take your crown, subdue your kingdom, enthrall your creatures. Don't you long for the day that Jesus receives the glory he deserves? That every knee will bow and every tongue confess him as Lord. If that is what you live for, then let that be what you live for. Taking the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who gave up so much more than we could ever be asked to do, so we might be called sons and daughters of God. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. A few years after Jim died, a number of the wives whose husbands were killed went back to that tribe. They shared the gospel with that tribe. And now many people from that tribe trust in Jesus. They started a local church and the gospel went out. Let me quote to you Elizabeth Elliot's words, Jim's wife. There can be no greater joy than to know that the blood of our husbands has been the seed of the Akua church. She's happy. There can be no greater joy than giving up my own husband so that others might be in Christ. That models the humility of Jesus, doesn't it? Humility, true humility, is recognizing what Jesus gave up for us and willingly following him for the sake of another and for the sake of his glory. And the question for us as we hear this word from Paul and the encouragement of being in Christ is this. How will you live your life 
given what Jesus has given up for you? What will you give for the spread of his kingdom? Let's pray. Father, as we stand and view what you have done in your son, the amazing heights Jesus stepped down from, the amazing things he he gave up for us that we could be forgiven, that we could stand forgiven, we are so thankful. We experience such comfort and such love and such consolation that we can be part of your family, that we can look forward to an eternity where every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. But we confess right now that so often that image falls from our horizon. We get so caught up in our rights and privileges, in what we want, in the comforts that we have. We ask that you'd help us to see the joy of partnering with you in your mission. To see more and more people come to know Jesus. Help us to partner together with linked arms as a church that's united in Christ. Not having divisions, but serving you. And help us to put Jesus first in everything that we might live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.